It really is that simple as we sit and we bask in the grace of the gospel through these verses and we look at our neighbor this very evening and we understand the person beside me in so much as they are a believer has been saved by the same gospel that has saved me. It should only ever result in an impulse of love and affection toward one another. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part three of By Grace Through Faith, a study in Ephesians from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text for today is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter two, verses four through seven. Isn't it amazing how a book written thousands of years ago in a completely different social, political, and technological system can still be relevant today? You don't think it's true? Well, in this latest series, By Grace Through Faith, Pastor Paul has been teaching us about what unifies us as people. And if we've learned nothing lately by all the protests, riots, political upheavals, and social arguments regarding culture, race, and economy, it's that we're all looking for some common ground. And I ask you, what can it be? What can unite me to you, you to your friend, you to God? Let's listen now to Pastor Paul as he tells us what unifies us as well as what separates us from each other, ourselves, and God. I'm excited to be back in the text, and it would be appropriate to remind ourselves of where we've come from. Chapter 1, as you'll remember, Paul declares that the Ephesians are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He gives one of the most extended and richest eulogies we have in all of Scripture, unpacking one gospel truth after another towards the believers in Ephesus with the intention that they would respond with praise. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of how he has blessed us, we are to live lives that bless him. That's Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. And then you'll remember Paul records for us his prayer for the Christians there in Ephesus and simply stated his prayer is that they would know the blessings that they have received. Very simply stated, Paul prays that they would know how blessed they truly are so that, again, their lives would be to the praise of God's glory. As we turn the corner into chapter 2 of the letter, Paul begins to address some more specific issues, particularly as they relate to the congregation there in Ephesus. One of the issues that concerns the Apostle Paul is that of unity. I've said several times that Maybe the overarching theme of this letter is the church. It's difficult to pin down because there are so many theological themes throughout this letter, but maybe if there is one that stands above all the others, it is the church. Paul's concern that the Ephesians would understand the church, 
they would have a robust theology of the church, and that they would practice a good ecclesiology, that their actions toward one another, especially when they gather together, would reflect the gospel by which they have been saved. One of the issues that confronted them as Paul tackled this reality is that in the congregation were both Jews and Gentiles. And I do think it is difficult for us to really get our minds around how much of a hurdle this could have been for these first century believers. Jews and Gentiles who otherwise would have had nothing to do with one another now find themselves together worshipping each and every Lord's Day and being told that they are in fact brothers and sisters in Christ. They're being exhorted in much the same manner that we are exhorted each Sunday. They are being exhorted to live their lives with one another during the week. Paul is teaching them to share their lives with one another, to open up their lives toward one another, to lay down their lives for the sake of one another, And yet prior to their understanding of the gospel, they would have had nothing to do with one another. The Jew-Gentile problem is actually one that we see woven throughout many New Testament texts. And it comes up here again in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul's goal, if you drop your eyes down to the very last verse of this chapter, his goal is that they would know, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So one of his emphases is unity in the gospel, unity in the local church, both practiced and embraced and adored as an expectation. And to that end, Paul begins in chapter 2 by laying out the common depravity that we all have apart from any work of Christ in our lives. That was the last sermon, verses 1 through 3. We are all alike sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us has any ounce of righteousness in and of ourselves that we can bring to the table. And because of that common depravity, that should compel us towards a sense of unity. We know where we have come from. Here in verses 4 through 7, he progresses the argument and says, not only is it true that we are all fallen, all sinners, all rebels, but we all enjoy a common salvation. We all enjoy the same gospel, the same means by which we are reconciled to God. It is not a different means of salvation for the Jew than it is for the Gentile. It's critically important as we study these few verses tonight that we see them in their broader context. The broader context is an argument toward unity in the gospel. And as a means of getting there, Paul labors the fact that everybody who is in Christ has been saved by the same gospel. And thus the implication as we consider this glorious gospel is that we would love one another. 
It really is that simple. As we sit and we bask in the grace of the gospel through these verses, and we look at our neighbor this very evening, and we understand the person beside me, in so much as they are a believer, has been saved by the same gospel that has saved me, it should only ever result in an impulse of love and affection toward one another. Or, to put it another way, if we truly understand that we have all been saved by grace, there is absolutely no room for disunity in the local church. Before we walk through the text, it is just worthy of a comment on that doctrine of unity as it relates to the entirety of God's Word. It is not just a doctrine that we find in Paul's writings. The exhortation towards unity in the local church is not restricted to Ephesians nor to Paul's writings, but it flows all through the Scriptures. As I have taught through the Old Testament and the New, I am struck more and more how much of a priority it is in God's mind that His people would be unified. In the Old Testament Scriptures and in the New, one constant emphasis that you see all the way through redemptive history is that God's people would be unified. God desires that His people would be holy, and He desires that they would be of one mind, one spirit. If you come here this evening knowing that in some way, albeit subtle, albeit slight, you are the cause of an expression of disunity in this body, know that that does not please God. It causes Him great grief. If in any way you are content to bring about disunity in the body, however small it may seem, maybe with just one other brother, one other sister, not truly reconciled with one another, for some reason, understand that that is unacceptable before God. He desires holiness. He desires unity. And so it should be of the utmost priority that we are ever striving to be of one mind and one spirit as we gather together Sunday by Sunday and many times in between. How do we get there? Well, we would do well to consider the common salvation that we have in Christ. And that is the impetus of Paul's argument this evening, verses 4 through 7. He simply walks us through the gospel with the desire that we would be built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we can divide the text into three, beginning with what Paul says first and foremost about God the Father. Verse 4, he begins, but God. And it is appropriate to stop there and just to ponder those two words. We could easily spend our whole evening just thinking about those two words. But God. Paul writes these words, do not forget, to form a sharp juxtaposition with the doctrine of sin that he has just given us in verses 1 through 3. We are all utterly depraved, lifeless, dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. 
The point is, God is a God who takes the initiative. He is proactive and not reactive. He did not wait for us to express a desire for salvation. We never could have because we were spiritually lifeless. God looked upon us and he acted so as to bring about salvation in our lives. It speaks more than anything about the nature of the God by whom we have been saved. As we read in Genesis chapter 1, he is a God who speaks and his will is enacted. God spoke and creation came into being. In the same way, God looks upon the dead, lifeless sinner and he acts so as to raise him or her to newness of life. Now, why would God act in that manner? The answer is verse 4, because he is rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy. That word mercy we use all the time. Remind yourself often of what it means. This speaks of God's disposition towards those who are in a terrible state of affairs. It speaks of God being favorably disposed towards those who are in a wretched condition. And not only is God merciful, but Paul says he is rich in mercy. And so again, we see not only the character of God being put on display before us, but also the gospel is now beginning to be unfolded. But God, he took the initiative when you were unable to. You had no cause to concern yourself with him, but God, and he did so, he acted because he is rich in mercy. He is overflowing in kindness and he disposed himself favorably towards you. Again, we might pause and say, but why did he do that? God, being rich in mercy, why did he look upon my lowly estate so as to raise me to newness of life? Paul continues, anticipating our very question, because of the great love with which he loved us. Do not overlook the small words of Scripture. It is especially important in the epistles. Every genre of the Bible commends a different approach. And when you're in the epistles, I would exhort you to pay particular attention to the small words, the buts and the because and the therefore and the for and the by, because it is these small words that often form the hinge points in an argument. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And there is God's impetus. It is because he is a loving God that he so acted towards you so as to save you. In fact, we might go further and say it's not simply because God is loving, but as we know from elsewhere, it is because God is love. There are four God is statements in the Bible. God is spirit. God is a consuming fire. God is light, and God is love. And as we read two times in John's first epistle, God is love. 
We are being led into the very being, the very heart of God, the creator. He is in his very essence, love. And one of the most spiritually rewarding disciplines that you can pursue is to simply meditate on the love of God. One of the most spiritually rewarding and fruitful disciplines that you can give your time to is to meditate upon the fact that your God is love. In accordance with the same logic by which Paul prays in Ephesians 1, you don't need to do anything, you simply need to know something. You have to know that your God is love. And theologians will often dissect that love and speak of the manifold love that we see being exercised by our God who is love. They begin with an inner Trinitarian love. God is love, which is to say he is love apart from you. God is love before you were created. God is love before you were in need of him. God is love before you acted in rebellion, which tells us that there is an inner Trinitarian love that is enjoyed and delighted in by God himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally and perfectly loving one another. Then we could move out from there and say the next layer by which we see and experience God's love is a a general love exercised towards creation. Consider that God was not bound to create the universe He was perfectly happy in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly loving one another, and yet he acted so as to create. There is a love in his created work that we see shed abroad to all of the universe. The love experienced by creation. Beyond that, we could point to another layer of God's love, which is received in a special way by humanity. We begin with the Godhead and we then see love being exercised towards creation generally and now specifically towards humanity. Insomuch as he decreed that we would sit above the created order and we would receive the special privilege of being made in his image, we understand a unique kind of love that comes to mankind and mankind alone distinct and different from the love that is experienced by the rest of creation, this is another layer of love that comes from God. And then there is the ever so special love that is only experienced by the elect. Different and distinct from the love that is experienced by all of humanity is a love that comes through the gospel to those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. It is not experienced by those whom he has not predestined for salvation. There is a special love for his children. And Paul explains the gospel in terms of that love. You are a wretched sinner and you had no hope. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 
That was the impetus by which he acted. It is the reason that you are here this evening. And one reason that I say one of the most spiritually rewarding disciplines that you could ever give yourself to is to simply ponder and meditate upon the love of God is because, at least in part, there is in our sinful flesh built into us a readiness to distrust God. One of the reasons it is wise to set your mind so as to consider the manifold depths and riches of God's love is because intuitively in our sinful natures we tend to distrust God. We tend to doubt His love. It was introduced into our DNA around about Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent said to Eve, did God really say? The serpent there is assaulting the character of God, not merely causing Eve to doubt the command, but so also causing Eve to doubt the character of her creator. Is my God one who can be trusted? Is my God one who says one thing and means something altogether different? Am I certain of his love for me? And as she took of the fruit and as Adam took of the fruit and as sin came into the world, there is forever after in every human being a level of distrust towards God. We tend to doubt his love for us. And this is why Paul writes to the Romans and he says, the evidence of God's love is found at the cross. You do not need to doubt him ever. Simply look to the cross and see that his love caused him to send his son so as to die for you. That is the most evident, most emphatic declaration of God's love for you. As a Christian, look to the death of Christ and see that God did not withhold his son, but willingly gave him for us. Will he not also with him freely give us all things? That is the argument. That's the logic that Paul employs there. And it should be the logic toward which we return every single day. Because in our flesh, we tend to doubt God. We either tend to doubt his love as it was manifested towards us in salvation, or more likely we doubt his ongoing abiding love towards us in so much as we press on in the race of sanctification. We rise up each and every day to live afresh to the glory of Christ at some level in our heart, doubting whether God is really for us today. And so the way that works itself out in practice ever so subtly is we begin to behave with a motive, a desire to impress God, to win his favor, to somehow get him on our side forgetting the fact that he is already on our side. We already have his favor. We have his approval. We have his love in the gospel. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. If you ever dare to listen to or watch the news, you'll notice that a lot of people are angry. What's the cause? What's the solution? Making it more personal, are you angry? Who are you in disunity with? Ultimately, it's with God, a problem since time began for which God has lovingly provided a solution. His blessed Son was crucified for all mankind. 
If you'd like to learn more about being in unity with God and your fellow man, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts, and there you'll find an abundance of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If this program has a positive impact on your walk with Jesus, will you consider making a financial gift to be part of what God is doing through this outreach ministry? On the homepage of TimelessTruthToday.org, select Donate to make your gift of any amount. Join us tomorrow for part four in our series, By Grace Through Faith. And as a reminder, TimelessTruthToday.org becomes BeholdingChrist.org on Monday. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.